0: Scientists refer to it as Frigatris Cacophobia, and the question is, do you have it? Are you afflicted by it? 19 million Americans report suffering from it to some degree, and this is the technical term for someone who is afraid of the date Friday the 13th. Economists estimate that we lose one billion dollars in lost revenue every single time. The 13th lines up with a Friday because many of us stay home, don't go to work, won't get on a plane, won't do that business deal, and productivity in America drops as a result. We all have different kinds of fears. The question is, what's yours? So let's begin today. Confession's good for the soul. Turn to somebody next to you and name one thing that frightens you. Turn to somebody and answer that question. Ready, set, go. There's lots of different things that frighten us, let's put up the proverbial house of things that frighten us, cancer, heights, terrorism, germs, insect, mites, crowds, the dark, dentists, snakes, needles, all kinds of different things that we tend to be afraid of. My fear is not on this list, this is what keeps your pastor up at night, (laughs) I cannot stand clowns. They creep me out. I think it's the scariest thing in all of creation. Well, there's lots of different things depending on who you are, where you're from, how you were raised. There's lots of different fears that you might have. But one of the things that we could probably all agree on is that we are living in an age of anxiety that we are living at a time where there's not just the individual little fears that we have, but fear seems to be on the rise. I serve as a trustee for the school that I went to, Trinity University, and I learned something at the last board meeting that absolutely surprised me. In the fall of 2018, with the same student body in terms of size, in the fall of 2018, They had the same number of counseling therapy appointments for the students as they did in the entire academic year of 2011-2012. In other words, in six years, double the number of counseling appointments for the same size group of people. Now, part of this is bound to be a good thing. Part of it is that maybe the stigma of getting coaching and counseling and helping is is actually falling by the wayside. But you cannot attribute that kind of rise to just that. Back when I was in school in the 90s, when somebody went for counseling, it was typically for depression. Now, the number one emotional, mental, spiritual struggle that we have has to do with our worries, our fears, and our anxieties. And here's where things got really interesting for me as a trustee, is that the director of enrollment made an offhand comment that to me was not just an offhand comment. He said, the higher the GPA or the grade point average of the class, the higher the reported cases of anxiety. In other words, anxiety is something that afflicts the strong, the successful, the driven those who are pursuing. This is where anxiety strikes. There's a church that's fairly similar to Peachtree. It's a large Methodist congregation in a very kind of affluent, successful part of a city. And the pastor there decided to survey the congregation. And what he found out was that 80% of his congregation lives with moderate, high, or debilitating levels of anxiety. Four out of every five of you probably struggle with at least moderate anxiety. And so I love how Max Lucado describes it when he says anxiety is a meteor shower of what ifs. What if I don't have enough? What if I can't make it? What if that person excludes me? What if That person's not safe. All of these different meteor showers of what ifs, and all of that comes crashing into the reality of the most important and prevalent command of the Bible to be not afraid. In the Bible, this happens in some form or another 140 different times. Do you think we ought to sit up and pay attention to it? And I know that the minute you hear this, be not afraid, do not be afraid, that there's some confusion that we need to clear up. The first thing you need to know is that fear is an emotion. It is not a sin. So you don't need to worry about your worries, and you don't need to be anxious about your anxiety. There is nothing wrong with experiencing fear. It's perfectly natural. Second thing you need to know in the face of this command is that healthy fear is good, that God has hardwired your body with the proverbial canary in the cave, and you're supposed to know whether or not it is safe, and that that is a gift. There are healthy kinds of fears. Fear helps you to pay your taxes on time and in full. Fear helps you to stay married. I think it says somewhere in the Bible, the fear of the wife is the beginning of wisdom. (laughs) Oh, no, wait, that has to do with fear of the Lord. But they're related to one another, are they not? Fear keeps you from getting too close to the precipice of the edge of the cliff. A certain amount of fear, healthy fear, is a good thing. The problem is is that fear wants to take over. Fear wants to drive your life. And so when the Bible says, be not afraid, you need to hear this in the frame of reference. Don't let your life be dominated by fear. Don't let it be controlled by fear. Don't let it be manipulated by fear. You know, one of the more common fears that people say is they say that like the number one fear in America is public speaking. I actually don't believe that. And you might say, well, Rich, that's because you do it every single week, and so you're used to it. No, 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 I, I agree that people are saying it. I just don't think it's the actual fear. I think there's a fear behind the fear. I don't think the fear is getting up and saying words. I think the fear is humiliation. I think the fear is the possibility for public shame. And so I just want to march right into the meteor shower of what ifs into our lives and for us to get to the fears behind the fear with this series that we're entitling Unafraid. And we're going to talk about the fear of insignificance and what if I don't matter. We're going to talk about the fear of uncertainty. What if things fall apart? We're going to talk about the fear of change. What if I can't keep up? We're going to talk about the fear of failure. What if I don't have what it takes? We're going to talk what if I run out? What if that person isn't safe? What if I'm not included? What if this is the end? And we're going to learn how to obey this command and to confront our fears and to march into faith and to the reality that God has for each and every one of us. So today's kind of like a little intro, and I want us to look and to hear A really great Old Testament passage. Normally, I have you pull out your Bibles. I actually don't want you to do that this time. I want you to just hear this as like story time. And so you might be able to not study this story, but receive it and absorb it. This is a moment in the Bible when God's people are just about to enter into the promised land and they send some spies into the land to see what it's like. And so the spies came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. And there they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account, we went into the land which you sent us and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful and the cities are fortified and very large. And then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, We should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We can't attack those people. They're stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land that they had explored. They said, The land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw are of great size. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. And that night, all the members of our community raised their voices and wept aloud. And all the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land? Only to let us fall by the sword. Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, We should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell face down in front of the whole assembly gathered there. Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb of Jephna, who were among those who had explored the land, they tore their clothes. They did this because what the Israelites were doing was blasphemy. They tore their clothes and they said to the entire Israelite assembly, the land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. He will give it to us. Do not rebel against the Lord. Do not be afraid of the people of the land. We will devour them. Their protection is gone. The Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. This is a story about fear and what fear does. And the first thing that fear does is it causes you to forget the past. Fear causes you to rewrite history and to neglect it. This is the same group of people. This is the same group of people who watched God take on Egypt and all of its gods with the ten plagues and how they were spared even with their own lives. This is the same group of people that marched right out of the most powerful empire of the world. This is the same group of people that followed a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. This is the same group of people that walked on dry land through the bottom of the Red Sea. This is the same group of people that watched Pharaoh's army and chariots fall into the waves. This is the same group of people that that went through the wilderness and were provided with manna even when there wasn't enough to eat. This is the same group of people that now finds themselves on the precipice of entering into that promised land. A promise that was given to them all the way back at the beginning at Abraham. A promise that God has made good on every step of the way. And now as they get close, they have forgotten all of that stuff. Tim Keller describes it, that it's like God did battle with Egypt and hit it right in the mouth and knocked it out. And it's like it didn't even happen. And he says a proper analogy of this would be something along the lines of imagine an army overtaking the city of New York and then getting to the edge of a small town in Mississippi and being afraid to go in. Now, of course, Tim Keller is a New Yorker, and maybe he does not realize how well-armed small towns in Mississippi are, (laughs) but his point is well-taken because God says this to his people, you saw my glory and the miraculous signs that I performed in Egypt. They saw all of that firsthand. They just don't remember it. The first thing that fear does is it causes you to forget the past. The second thing that fear does is that it exaggerates the present, it makes it bigger than it really is. One of my favorite books on fear happens to be a children's book. It says what to do when you worry too much. It's actually a book that's based out of science. It's based out of the the wonderful research of cognitive behavioral therapy, and it helps to walk a child through being able to bring the worries and the anxieties down. And the analogy that they give in this book is is think of it as whatever you pay attention to has a tendency to grow. If you have a garden and you pay attention to the tomatoes that you've planted and you water them and you tend to them, they will grow. And your worries are like that. That your worries are the kind of thing that if you pay attention to your worries and you tend to your worries and you focus and you fixate on your worries, they will get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. This is what happens to the Israelites when the spies go into the promised land. It says this, all the people we saw there are of great size. Now, I'm from Texas. I appreciate a good tall tale. And I'm sure that when they got to the promised land, they're like, wow, these people are tall. And then halfway, they're like, no, 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 no! they're like crazy tall. And by the time they get all the way back to where everybody else is, they're like giants. The story just got bigger and bigger and bigger. And the worry got bigger and bigger because that's what they were fixated on. Uh, One pastor puts it this way. He says, fear is false evidence appearing real. All of a sudden, there's these giants. And they say that they, they do what scientists refer to as catastrophizing, making something much bigger than it really is. And they say this by saying the land devours It's inhabitants. Really? The land is eating people now? But we do this, right? We're not just making fun of them. This happens all the time. It's what fear does. Fear forgets the past. It exaggerates the present, and it cages the future. It traps them. They're stuck. One of the things that we discover here is that the Israelites are asking a question. Wouldn't it be better for us if we went back to Egypt? Let's ponder the rationality of this question for a minute. What was their occupation in Egypt again? Oh, yeah, they were slaves. Those were the good old days. Maybe we ought to go back there. Maybe Pharaoh will welcome us with open arms and put us in positions of middle management. Is that what's going to happen? No, no rational mind would ever think about this, but they get caged in that place 38 years. They are literally a mile. They are geographically a mile. We know where they are. They're a mile from entering the promised land, and they don't go in, and for 38 years they listen to fear instead of faith. And maybe you know what that feels like. So what do you do with this? How, can, is there anything practically you can do with this information? Let me give you uh, just a handful of tips of when your fear starts to try to take over your life, what you can do. The first one is this. The first thing that you can do is that you can focus. Here's what I mean by this. Let's say I'm on a date with my wife. And just over my my wife's left shoulder is a TV screen in the bar. And I have a perfect view of that TV screen. Well, I can't help but not look at that TV screen if ESPN is on. I just can't help it. The reason I bring up this analogy is, is that your mind is like a TV screen, and you cannot help but pay attention to it. You can't turn it off. You know what you can do? You can change the channel. If that TV was talking about, you know, like some home improvement show, I am completely uninterested in that, and it will not distract me. Your mind is your place of first freedom and you can choose to focus on what you focus on. And it's the first step in helping to reduce worry and anxiety and fears in your life, is to be able to focus on the right things. Joshua and Caleb, they say this, the land is exceedingly good. They're not focused on the inhabitants or how tall they might happen to be. They're focused on the land and the promises of God. Book of Philippians puts it this way, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, if there's anything of excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things and the God of peace will be with you. The first decision you have to make is to be able to focus on the right things. The second thing when fear starts to take over your life is this, Slow down. We are overextended, we are overhyped, we are way over our skis in life. One of my professors put it this way, we were built for camel travel and yet we are flying like supersonic jets. And let me talk scientifically and medically with you for a moment. When anxiety is going crazy in your brain, that is not the presence of something, that is the absence of something chemically. Bear with me a little bit here. Your brain and mine was built for a recovery system with neurotransmitters that help us to deal with that kind of thing and to put it in perspective. But because we live at such a frantic pace, what we are seeing biologically happens in our brains is that we are losing what scientists call these neurotransmitters or what they call happy messengers. What I like to put a little theological spin are on mental peacemakers that God has built into your brain. And because we are going so fast, that recovery system is not working, and that is probably the strongest correlation with the rise of anxiety in our society. So the first thing you can do is to focus on the right things, to think about the right things. The second thing you can do is that you can slow down. The third thing you can do is pray. The Book of Philippians puts it this way, do not worry about anything, but in everything, pray. Here's the deal. You can worry about something or you can pray about something, but you cannot do both of those things at the same time. They occupy the same mental and spiritual real estate in your body and your soul and your heart. Worrying is just a form of meditation. It's just meditating on the wrong things. There's a lot of talk in today's Psychology circles and a lot of great science on the great benefits of mindfulness and meditation. And I believe all of that. I just want to put a little Christian question or coda at the end of that that says this. Mindful of what? Meditating on what? Just being mindful of our bodies? Just being mindful of our surroundings? I don't think that gets us to where we need to be. I think you're supposed to be mindful of God and of all His promises and His presence. And I think that's where prayer takes this recovery to a whole new level. And so focus, slow down, pray, call for help. I don't know where it is for you on that moderate To debilitating forms of fear, but I know the data. 40 million Americans are living with debilitating anxiety right now, and only about a third of those people are getting any kind of coaching or help or treatment. I don't know if you need a friend, or if you need a professional, or if you need your church. But in the midst of your fear, you shouldn't have to walk that journey alone. And so reach out to a bud. Reach out to your church. We have things called Stephen Ministers that would love to come alongside you in the midst of the pain. We have a great professional counseling center called Lifegate, or maybe we can refer you to another therapist, but you shouldn't have to do this alone. Focus, slow down, pray, call for help, and finally, stay close. And by this, I don't mean stay close to one another, although that's a good thing. What I mean is that God stays close to you. The most common pairing with the phrase, be not afraid, is the follow-up for I am with you the reason that we don't have to live our lives consumed by fear is because God is with us. I don't know if you saw the story of this last winter and how there was a bus in Pennsylvania with a group of elementary school kids that was trying to make it what should have been like a 15 or 20-minute commute turned into a a four-and-a-half-hour drive with A snowstorm and with traffic and a parent called the school and let the school know what was going on and the principal found out and the principal got a phone number for a fifth grader who was on that bus who had a phone and this man here Dr. Brian the principal of the school whom the students know who the students adore who the students love he calls that student and FaceTimes with him and enters to the bus with them and reads them stories and says, you're going to be okay. You're not alone. People are coming to help. He was with them. Perfect love casts out all fear, the Bible says. And by that, I don't think the Bible means that you have to have a perfect love in order to live without the fear that so ravages our lives. The only one who has that complete kind of love is God. And so receive God and his perfect love. And I think it's the only thing that helps us to live up to the command to be not afraid. And so let's pray. Father, there are meteor showers of what-ifs cascading down on us right now. And so, will you be near to us in the midst of our anxiety and our worries and our doubts? Get to the fears behind our fears. Lord, forgive us for forgetting all that you've done for us, for saving us, for rescuing us in Jesus Christ. And if that's true, what should we fear? Lord, forgive us for exaggerating the present. We worry too much. We blow things out of proportion. We catastrophize. Help us to see things the way that you see them. And Lord, we know that we have gotten stuck. We've been caged and we have not marched into that future that you have in store for us. Help the person here who's on the verge of discovering one of your promises to march confidently that last mile and to stop wasting time in the wilderness. And so, thank you, God. Thank you for the ability to think and to slow down and to talk with you, to have a good friend. But most of all, thank you for entering into the storm of our doubts and fears and being near to us with your perfect love. And we pray these things in Jesus' name and all of God's people said,